every case lawsuit in meningitis has to do with only one thing. I think this paper makes another nail in the coffin of lights and sirens. This doesn't happen very often. This is an extremely rare event. I just think that there's simple ways of handling this stuff. I don't know why there's still lawsuits. I can have your kid stand in front of the x-ray machine while I fire that thing off 450 times. Expect to have it come back and bite you in the butt. I don't understand it at all. That doesn't make any sense. Rick, people can respond to IV peanut butter. I don't think that's standard of care. I don't do it. It's much better to be a gynecologist from Buffalo than a Buffalo gynecologist. The bottom line is, she died. Hello and welcome. Rick Bucata, Greg Henry, and Mel Herbert doing the April 2009 issue of Risk Management Monthly. Hello, everybody. Rick, I can't believe that we're doing an issue of Risk Management Monthly and we don't have an exotic location and umbrella drinks. But the last time Mel and I did this, it was certainly a better location. But what can we say? We've got to put up with you this time. So go ahead. Kick us off. Well, you know, you were in Hawaii, but now you're back to where you belong. Yeah, cold, yeah I understand. Cold, gray, sleety Michigan. And Melvis is out here with us in the Woodland Hills, beautiful Woodland Hills. Melvis and I, we did grand rounds this morning at the University of Southern California. I got to tour your brand new hospital, which is honestly looks like it's been around for five years. It's pretty beat already. <laughs> it's been uh, open for four months. Four months, okay. <laughs> In any case, that was a fun experience. What I'd like to start off with is, you know, two months ago, we had Dr. Steve Stelps from DuPont Children's Hospital in Delaware give us an entire issue on pediatrics. But since that time, I have found two papers that have summarized the world's literature, more or less, regarding pediatric malpractice cases. And they're fairly much similar, so I'm going to just cover one of them, really. And it was published in Acta Pediatrica of all places. I'm sure most of you get this journal, but it's going to get into the April or May issue of Emergency Medical Abstracts, of course. But in any case, this is three French authors doing a literature search of the world looking for articles related to pediatric malpractice. And they found six. All six of them were in the United States. And they also added into their literature search, and I think it's kind of fortuitous, in Pediatric Emergency Care, the journal, Steve Selps is the editor of a section on pediatric litigation. And they took 227 cases that were published in Pediatric Emergency Care and threw that in the pot as well. The largest two studies of pediatric lawsuits, actually the first is a look at the National Practitioner Data Bank and looked at 4,107 cases. And then there's another one here by Steve Selps himself, who looked at PIAA database. Now, Greg, what is that? Physicians Insurance something or other? Association exchange? of America, Rick. The Physician right. Insurance Association of America. You'll like it. They had 2,283 cases. The other four papers had a handful, maybe 100 or 200 cases. So by far, the largest that came from Dr. Selps and this review from the National Practitioner Data Bank. But in any case, let me tell you what they had to say here. First of all, they say that the incidence of 
changing money and lawsuits with kids is about half of what it is with adults. They said for every 100,000 visits, there are 5.6 incidences of payments in these PEDS cases versus 10 for adults per the National Practitioner Data Bank. They also point out that the kids that are at greatest risk are the little tykes, those under two. Rick, is this a problem? Is there something here we don't understand? Most kids are well. Most old people are sick. I mean, when you think about the entire world here, hello, give me a break. How hard is it to see mostly well people? Yes, Gregor, that would account for why this is for as adults. One of the things that is really surprising is the small number of cases that are involved in terms of their etiology. In kids less than two, the top three causes of their lawsuits were meningitis, gastroenteritis. I don't know what you would be suing for in gastroenteritis. I guess you get dehydrated, but I mean, you just refill them up and I don't know why you would sue. And pneumonia. That was in kids less than two. All right, let's get to the causes of these lawsuits. In kids less than two, meningitis, gastroenteritis, although I'm not sure what the big deal is about gastroenteritis and what would result in a lawsuit. Gregor, can you help me there? Well, the problem with gastroenteritis is the eventual outcome of the kid. Most of these are children who come in. If fluid's going out one end or the other, we can almost always stick fluid at a kid. So the lawsuits have to do with those kids who become so dehydrated that something else happens. But it's interesting that you mentioned the meningitis question because... What's happened after our vaccinations is the number of bacterial meningitis in the United States, anyway, has plummeted. I haven't seen a case of bacterial meningitis in a kid in five years. Yes, I think that that's true. I don't think the other causes have changed any, but this is a cumulative database, and it may not be as current as we would like. The third most common cause in a less than two-year-old is pneumonia, missed pneumonia. In the kids between three and five, meningitis again. Watch this now, intestinal occlusion. Intestinal occlusion, what are we talking about here? Are we talking about intussusception or some kind of other mechanical obstructions of the bowel? That becomes number two. And number three are fractures in the three to five-year-old group. Six to 11 is trauma. Actually, Rick, when you're talking about occlusion in those kids, you're probably talking about, in the very small ones, pyloric stenosis. No, this is between uh, three and five. This is, oh, three uh, and that, five. Yeah. So I'm thinking okay, three so to five. Okay, so talking about the intussusception kids and things like that. There were other mechanical causes of bowel obstruction. That's got to be very rare, Rick. Look at all the cases that we've all seen just with the three of us. This has still got to be relatively rare stuff. When you're talking about pediatrics, you're talking about the 1% or 2% of lawsuits. You're not talking about the big stuff. That may be true, although this is a recurring kind of theme here from the searching of these six papers. Now, yes, there is always the issue as is all of this current. The only thing that really has changed is we now immunize kids against meningitis, but we really haven't changed any of the other stuff. So let me get back to age 6 to 11. Trauma and fractures, appendicitis, and again, meningitis. Well, we can scratch that off if you want to. But look at what happens at age 12 to 18. Trauma, fractures, appendicitis, and torsion. So there's a handful of diagnoses, maybe six or seven, that comes up. Now, ages are varying, but... You know, we've heard this over and over. Torsion is a problem. Appendicitis is a problem. I guess pneumonia, gastroenteritis, meningitis, they are problems as well. But I don't understand 
why torsion remains high on the list of pediatric um, lawsuits because I not I'm never sure what the damages are. Whether losing a testicle is a problem depends on several things. It's definitional. First of all, is it the first testicle or the second testicle? The other thing is, is it mine or is it yours? There's always some loss here. But what I want to point out is just assume if you're an emergency doc, if you've got some child under 18 with pain in a testicle, it's just torsion till proven otherwise and call the urologist. I don't see why... We should torture ourselves over these questions, particularly when you have a non-sexually active five-year-old who has pain in a testicle. It's a torsion till you prove it otherwise. Just call them in. And don't let the urologist give you this crap about, well, get an ultrasound and then get a scan and then get this and then get that. You know, that's castration by procrastination. Just have them come in and see the kid. With regard to fractures... If we take the attitude that if you think enough of it to x-ray it, you think enough of it to splint it, I'm not sure how you go wrong unless you've made the serious mistake of guaranteeing to a parent that there's no fracture there. I never use those words, no fracture. What I like to say is there's no obvious displaced fracture that needs a pin, screw, or a wire tonight. That doesn't mean there's a hidden fracture. And if you just take those two modes of practice, I think we can eliminate most of these lawsuits. Well, you can certainly see why everybody and his uncle is doing all of these CTs so they don't miss appendicitis because it's the same kind of thing. Where is the damages in the, the appendicitis? You had to stay a day longer because it was ruptured. And did that rupture occur because of some delay? Is there the potential threat of adhesions 30 years from now that is going to be compensated today? It's a problem. I think that this has gone from the ridiculous to the sublime. And I don't think we've changed the negative operative rate very much with doing scans. The other thing is, with a kid, you can re-examine them in four hours and see what the belly looks like. I mean, heaven forbid we would actually use some intelligence on a case like this. You know, I've got a grandchild now. Before I got a CT of the belly, which is 450 times the radiation of a chest X-ray, I want to put some clinical intelligence into this. I think the biggest problem is not carrying out a discussion with the parents about why you're not going to do something at a point in time and why you are going to re-examine them. I think we've lost our way here. I think we're doing crazy stuff, and I don't want to fall into the trap of doing things because the lawyers think it's right. I mean, that's not why doctors should be doing things. I was going to say a couple of things. I first wanted to summarize those things that produce litigation in pediatrics and then have a little philosophical discussion because I hear a tone here and I hear a continuing theme. But let's go over those things again. So you said for the zero to two-year age group that meningitis, gastroenteritis, pneumonia, and some vague thing about the impaired neonate and the obstructed neonate. But we've probably gotten rid of meningitis So it's mostly about infectious things, pneumonia, gastroenteritis, and then some stuff that it's really hard to know what to do with. In the three to five-year age group, again, meningitis, okay, that's gone. So it's gastroenteritis, and then fractures start to take off and trauma start to take off after around the age of about six. And then appendicitis starts to pick up in that sort of 12-year-old age range, as does torsion. So it goes uh, gastroenteritis, pneumonia, and then it moves into fractures, and trauma, and then it moves into trauma, appendicitis, 
and testicular torsion as the kid gets up into age 18. But what I keep hearing here is two themes. One is, why are we getting sued over these things? It's just not right. It's silly. And then the other is how we prevent them. So, Rick, you go back over and over again about you just clearly it upsets you that people are getting sued for torsion. But is that really what this program's about? You're getting sued for it, so who cares? Document it well. And then, Greg, I hear, why are we doing tests for appendicitis even though we're getting sued for it a lot? Why don't we do something different than that? Is that the themes that I'm hearing here? Well, I think the principal theme is people sue for a loss of confidence in the doctor or the system. What they sue for is the fact that they got surprise. They were told one thing and they got something else. So bring them into your confidence and say why we're going to do things to your child and what we're not going to do. Make them a partner in this decision-making. Whenever we say, well, we've got a test now, it's ruled out appendicitis, that's just flat out a lie. If you look at the data, maybe we only miss 5% or 6% with the CT scan as opposed to 10%. But you know what? Anybody who believes that that test is perfect has not looked at the data and hasn't looked in the face of a mother who's come back with their kid, and now the kid's worse. I think we need a little candor here in the practice, which will allow us to make some sort of therapeutic relationship with the family. Torsion is the same way. Kid's got a pain in his testicle. You know what? It's torsion. It'll prove otherwise. I don't know why this should be difficult at any point in time, and why we should be afraid of, after all, we don't call the urologist in for very much anymore. We can put a catheter into almost anybody. We can handle the stones. We can handle this and that. I just think that there's simple ways of handling this stuff. I don't know why there's still lawsuits. Well, my concern, honestly, is the wholesale irradiation of young children as now becoming more or less standard in terms of these evaluations to go from, as you were saying, Greg, from a 10% miss rate to a 5% miss rate. We're going to irradiate just about every one of these kids. I'm of the view, honestly, that the European literature on ultrasound and appendicitis is really surprisingly good, but that in America, the radiologists say, well, we're not that really good at that kind of thing. We don't feel a lot of confidence. And my sense is that what we need to do is we need to give them more cases of ultrasounds of these kids so that they can, in fact, get better than, and stop whining about, well, we don't feel confident about it because the Europeans are doing a much, much better job than we are. And we should do an ultrasound first in these little kitties when there is an equivocal situation. And if they see anything that is problematic in terms of making the interpretation, fine, then do the CAT scan. But to do these CAT scans wholesale in children because we're concerned unduly about the outcome of these cases, I think there is a price that we're paying, and that price is in the irradiation of children unnecessarily. What Greg said was so important. So everybody needs to hear what Greg said. The radiation that you get from an abdominal CT is somewhere around 400 times that of a chest X-ray. So imagine this. Picture this scenario. Here it is. Mrs. Smith, Mr. Smith, we can watch your kid and re-examine them and have them come back in 12 hours, or I can have your kid stand in front of the X-ray machine while I fire that thing off 450 times. You watch us scatter when we do the x-ray once. We're going to put your kid in front of the x-ray machine, the equivalent of when I do a CT scan, and hit the exposure button 450 times. 
And I think if you said it to them like that, they'd say, you know what, let's go for the observe for a while option. Let me give you my honest impression of why we get sued in appendicitis. It's we weren't honest moment one. We gave them a crap diagnosis that had viral gastroenteritis. If you'd been honest and say, can we be 100% sure it's not appendicitis? No, but they don't have enough indication to operate on them at this moment. What we're going to do is we're going to watch them in four hours. If their belly is still bad, maybe we'll do a study. Maybe we'll ask the surgeon to see them. That's why we get sued, because parents were given a diagnosis which was later proved to be wrong, and they weren't brought in at the beginning on the fact that nobody knows early on to 100%. We just need to be, again, candor here in this discussion, I think is absolutely necessary. Well, I think we've extracted all of the useful information out of this paper, except for one point, and Mel, you'll like this. It relates to emergency medicine residents. They are involved in a disproportionate number of these suits, according to this analysis. One study showed 58% of these pediatric-related lawsuits in emergency medicine involve resident evaluation and, obviously, lack of supervision. The residents are so young, Rick, we have to pin their rubber gloves to their (laughs) sleeves. I mean, think about this for a minute. You've got children looking at children. There's got to be an adult in there someplace to mediate the event. And the more an attending is involved in the care, I'm sure the less number of suits there are. And that's because they're looking for somebody with a little gray hair, that would be me, or somebody with no hair, that would be you, Rick, who would come in and talk honestly to them. Maybe kids aren't really small adults, and this thing about you need a little experience to look after kids is important, because these appy presentations, I'm with you, the sort of common presentation of appendicitis is completely atypical. And until you get that into your thick skull, you're going to miss them. The classic presentation is rare. The uncommon or the non-classical presentation is the most common presentation. And maybe that's the kind of thing that these young lads and lasses are screwing up. Well, the other thing is you have to put your hand on a certain number of bellies in your career to say, you know, that one's just not right. As soon as that happens, at least in my practice, when the belly doesn't feel right to me, I don't really care what the CT scan shows. The problem with CT scanning is, as the two of you are well aware, the fatter the kid, the better the study. When you have almost no fat, there's a fairly high miss rate. I think if it's clinically indicated, you've got a 14-year-old boy with rebound tenderness in the right lower quadrant, call the surgeon. Take the damn appendix out. I mean, what's the worst that can happen? See, now he can join the space program and not worry about having appendicitis on his way to Mars or something like that. All right, well, let's move on to the next one. Tort claims and adverse events in emergency medical services. This has been looked at every once in a while, and it's surprising how few lawsuits there are in this. But here's the most recent paper. It's from the September issue of the Annals of Emergency Medicine. Melvis, you want to tell us about this paper? Yeah, look, I'll give you the quick summary and then we can get into the discussion. But it was by Henry Wang, et al. and lots of friends. And as you say, it's very recent, September 2008. And it's from the Department of Emergency Medicine at Pittsburgh. And basically what these guys did without going into all the methodology is that they looked at one particular malpractice carrier who covers things like ambulance transfers, EMS of all different types. 
and ask the question, how often do they get sued? And what are the lawsuits about? Will that give us an idea about what things we could do to reduce our exposure under these circumstances? And I think the first overriding concept that you get when you look at this paper, after them going over thousands and thousands and thousands of cases and stuff, is the fact that they don't get sued very much. That this is not an area... You would expect, I think, that this might be a really high area for risk. But it turns out, with all of these transports and all of these patient maneuvers that they're doing, that it's actually pretty rare for them to get sued. And when they do get sued, it's for what we would consider in emergency medicine small numbers. So that was the first thing that hit me. But Mel, as you're saying that, just understand what they do. They're out there in the rain, in the snow, in the slush. They're doing life-saving kind of work. The public likes that. It's hard to make them the villains, particularly since 9-11 incident. How are you going to come down and say something bad about the EMTs? Give me a break here. There might be something in that. After they did this huge review... They basically found 326 claims that they could use in this analysis. Now, they use closed malpractice claims. They use open claims. They use ones that were pending. They just wanted to look at the whole thing to get a sort of an overview of everything that's going on as it pertains to risk management in EMS. And when they looked at what the adverse events were, number one was actually what? Can anybody guess what number one was for EMS malpractice claims of all types? It was I can. Go. What Crashes. Exactly. It's the crashing <laughs> it was, of the ambulance. It was driving the damn ambulance. So it had nothing to do really with the exact process of looking after the patient. It was crashing the ambulance. And they threw out in this study the ones that were less than $10,000. So I'm assuming sort of the minor offender benders. You crash and you put a big ding in the ambulance and it was less than $10,000 claim. They didn't worry about it. So they got rid of over those. So overwhelmingly, it's all about the act of driving the van, driving the ambulance. So that's important. I want to make a point about that, though. And that is there is no data or anything that suggests that an ambulance running greater than the posted speed limit or running faster than the weather conditions would allow leads to saving lives. So whenever you've got an ambulance which is going 70 miles an hour through downtown traffic, all that's done is put everybody else at risk. Yeah, just to add to that argument, because we have the medical argument, which is don't go lights and sirens because it's really hard to show that that ever helps people medically. And then you have sort of this risk management paper that says, make sure that when you're driving, you drive very carefully because the single biggest reason that your service is going to get sued is because you're going to crash into something or somebody. So two really good reasons to drive carefully. And you can't drive carefully when you're doing 120 miles an hour. Another point about driving is I've been the expert on several cases in which they had trouble locating the location where they were going to pick up the patient. They were actually sued for the delay of arriving because they had trouble locating the house or where they were going to be or where they were in the factory, that sort of thing. So some of these, when we look back on them, aren't really so much to do with medical care as it is with good driving and good judgment. Well, in this paper, the second thing they found, the second most common reason for this process of getting sued or being in the process of being sued was patient handling. So dropping the patient. So drive the van very carefully. Don't crash it. And don't drop the patient. Don't tip the gurney over. Don't do something bad to the patient physically while you're moving them. 
I think that's really important. And there's probably some functional things that you can do within your EMS service to make that better. Have gurneys that don't flip over. Some gurneys flip over very easily, and now they're sort of developing sort of wider-based ones. That's a very simple thing you can do, and it doesn't go into the detail, but probably if you put a 600-pound person on a tiny little thin gurney, they're more likely to flip over and be in trouble. I think what it really says, Mel, is use some common sense here. Wait till you get a few more people to help. Doctors are almost isolated from this. When we're in the hospital, particularly, we have people who help do most of the moving. You know, the actual physical moving of patients is hard work. And that's why EMS is basically a young person's game. And, you know, they need the help of everybody around them to do this safely. I'll tell you what, I wouldn't want to be managing a gurney on a 600-pound patient at this point in my career. Yeah, if you actually divide it up, they say, yeah, the biggest part of patient handling was they dropped somebody or the stretcher flipped over or the patient was injured in a wheelchair, this kind of thing. So it is all about patient movement. Then they get to clinical management. So this is the third most common. Remember, the first most common was you've crashed the vehicle. The second one is you're handling the patient and something bad happens. The third one, third on the list, is actually clinical management. So now we're actually trying to do interventions to the patient. And of those clinical management issues... The number one one was airway management, that something happened with airway management. Obviously, it didn't go as well as you'd like. And then there was adverse drug reactions, and then there was sort of a list of other things. But it was only until you got down to the third most common reason to get sued that airway management became important. And maybe that's because managing airways in patients is a relatively rare event in the pre-hospital care setting. Maybe that's all it means. But overall, it says that don't worry so much about the clinical management of things because from a medical malpractice point of view, there are much bigger things to get after first. Then there was transport events. So navigational events, you talked about this, Greg, that they took a long time getting there or they got lost getting there or there was some other event that occurred during transport. So what I take away from this, and that's really all I want to say about it, is that it's mostly the function of getting to the patient, picking the patient up and driving them back. All the stuff that you do when you go to the grocery store, the risk that you take going to the grocery store is very similar to the risk that these EMS personnel have. It's about driving the car, driving the van. And the clinical management of the patient is not that big reason for being sued in these cases. So it's a rare event to get sued, and the clinical management of things is also not a common reason to get sued. It's all about the physical transportation of patients. I think this paper makes a, as you've already pointed out, another nail in the coffin of lights and sirens, particularly in the setting of CPR in futile cases where we know the outcome is going to be negative. This is a recurring theme here in the literature about these injuries that occur with lights and sirens. And I think that now that we see that it is the number one cause of litigation in EMS, I think that although the absolute number of cases are small, I'm sure some of these settlements are quite large. I was the project medical director for Washtenaw County here in Michigan many years ago when they called me on a Christmas Eve that our ambulance going to get an 87-year-old patient with terminal cancer who'd arrested. Of course, this is Michigan. It's snow, ice. They'd slid through a stop sign and killed two teenagers in a Volkswagen. Now, you tell me what the overall effect on the health care of the community was going to get somebody who's already dead and killing two young kids who had their life in front of them. We need to reanalyze a lot of this stuff and decide what we're getting for our money. And I think this paper just points that out again. 
Okay, let's move on to our third paper, which is really very, very unusual and atypical, but I think everybody needs to know about this. It's entitled Position Statement, Use of Medical Textbooks in Malpractice Claims. Uh, this is a two-pager that was put together by John Marks and our friend Jim Roberts. And Greg, you want to go through this? I want to talk about this for a minute, Rick, because this was brought about by people, and I'm a signer on this document, by the way, so with that caveat in mind and that prejudice in mind, I'll make some comments about it. The reason that Jim and John Marks brought this up was because so often in lawsuits and from the stand, people are misusing what textbooks have to say. And I think the preamble and the position statements here bring up some very good points and this is what the authors are trying to do. They're trying to get this attached, this statement put, in the fronts of all these textbooks so that if there's a lawsuit, somebody has to read this to the jury. Now, let me tell you, I'm currently involved in the rewriting of the third edition of Neurologic Emergencies, A Symptom-Oriented Approach. I've already talked, and we've already talked, to the people at McGraw-Hill. They don't want an extensive disclaimer. They think that all of this stuff just complicates the thing. But I want you to hear some of the points that Jim and John have brought up, which I think are incredibly important. First of all, textbooks are written by individual people. They are an opinion of somebody at a certain point in time. That doesn't mean they're always right or will be found to be completely right in the future. And they point out again that the printed word is complex. And when we're looking at an individual patient, you cannot take the generalized statements from a textbook and necessarily apply it to the individual who sits in front of you. That's the point. Medical thinking cannot be grasped by laypersons on a jury simply by quoting some one line or two from a textbook. The fact that every medical encounter must be individualized and every patient must be approached as a case-by-case -case basis is the key. You can't take a general statement in a textbook and practice medicine from it. In fact, if you look at most of the textbooks that we published 50 years ago, you and I would disagree now with a lot of what they had to say. The point is, there is no one moment in time that has truth on its side, and a doctor practicing has to make some sort of individual decisions. I think they point out that it is not the purpose or intent of textbooks to serve as the final authoritative source on any medical condition. And believe me, as an author in several of these books involved, I can't agree with that more. I think that they've hit on something here that we need to emphasize to anybody participating in the medical legal system. And that is whenever you see a patient, you use the totality of your training, your experience, and the written word in helping to make a decision. Why this editorial, this little opinion piece now? Did something happen or is this well, just something they thought they should write? I think this is a compilation of things. First of all, Dr. Roberts and I have done several cases together as defense experts. I don't mind saying that. And we've seen the misuse of literature or snippets from a textbook. The other thing is, 
textbooks try and be universally inclusive of everything so that somebody can go down the checklist. That's not how emergency physicians think or practice. And we've seen the misuse of that and the quotings of those things when they quote our own work to us on the stand and they take something out of context. I think this is an expression of general frustration with the way the system is going. I don't know how to say it any differently than that, that the authors involved, and when you look at all the people listed in these various textbooks, you're looking at probably half the named authors in emergency medicine. They're not happy with the way their work is used, and that's why they're willing to sign on to this thing. This is clearly something that we cannot let get out of control, and I've worried about this for a long time. Imagine if the patient or even the physician, let's say I look after a patient who's sick and I follow Greg Henry's book on neurological emergencies and it goes badly and I get sued for $10 million and I turn around and say, you know what, McGraw-Hill, I'm going to sue you because I did what Dr. Henry said and you wrote it in your textbook and I want my $10 million from you. Can you imagine what would happen to the education market, the textbook market? Would McGraw-Hill or any of these people want to do textbooks anymore? I don't think so. Uh, they would just want to do you know, John Grisham and that's sitting. it. You must have been sitting in the room with the McGraw-Hill attorneys. The reason they want as little as possible in these books as far as disclaimers is they don't want anybody imagining that they can use this, come back against them for anything. You'll notice what they say right off the bat is medicine is an inexact science. You cannot depend on dosages listed in this book, on this, that, or another thing. They don't want anything that seems to open up the discussion of this with the plaintiff's lawyers because they feel they deal in a product. You can do with the product whatever you like. Read it, don't read it, extract from it, don't extract from it, but they do not want to be held responsible as the final arbiter of any of these things. Whenever we're tempted to look at the textbook, I always remember the famous line of William Osler when he said, to sail the sea without charts is to sail an uncharted ocean. To never leave the dock is not to set to sea at all. And I think that's right. You can't just have textbooks. You've got to have the actual patience that you work with. And I don't know that any of us can depend on what's written in one textbook as always right. Well, I could take this even further. Imagine if Greg Henry is giving a lecture and somebody gets sued and tries to go after Greg Henry because he gave a lecture and they interpreted what he said one way. Or if on emergency medical abstracts, the Rick and Jerry, so somebody says something and then there's a lawsuit and they go after that education program, it would cause the complete demise of education. Or you say... I'm a resident and I was taught this way in residency and now I'm out there and I'm practicing and I get sued and I say, that's not fair. I'm going to sue the University of Southern California because Stuart Swadron, our residency director, said we should look after chest pain patients this way. And it, I did and I got sued and now I'm going to come back after you. What a collapse you could, I think, you could extrapolate this out to. I think Jim well, Roberts summarized it best to hear when he says, we offer a general reference source and a clinical roadmap on a variety of conditions. You must take that roadmap and apply it to the person sitting in front of you. I don't think we can say it much better than that. I think Jim has hit the nail right on the head. There are 23 of the 
major textbooks in emergency medicine listed in this document. If anybody is being sued and somebody is using a textbook to establish the standard of care, you basically need to be aware of this document because these books are not intended for that. The authors clearly acknowledge that. Here is their statement. It is neither the purpose nor intent of our textbooks to serve as a final authoritative source on any medical condition, treatment plan, or clinical intervention. Nor should our textbooks be used to rigorously define a rigid standard of care that should be practiced by other clinicians. Greg, I'm really surprised that the publishers of books do not want this put in there. I don't understand it at all. This basically says, don't think about it. It seems to me that what you said was just the opposite, that the publishers don't want things like this in their books? That doesn't make any sense. You know why? Because what they feel is that they're already winning on this issue. They don't even want to raise the issue that it might be considered a standard of care or that they might be liable for something. As far as they're concerned, the trend has been in their favor. Nobody's suing McGraw-Hill for what's published. What this is about is suing the individual physician for not following something said in the textbook. And I think that as far as the publishers are concerned, they don't want to go there. Just this week, Neil Little and I have been involved in that exact discussion with one of the publishing people at McGraw-Hill. They feel very uncomfortable about putting this much emphasis on the subject in the fronts of their books. I also would like to consider, before we get to some letters and some other little things we have, ASEP clinical policies. One of my concerns about clinical policies, especially clinical policies generated by ASEP, is that many of us, if not most of us, are members. And I'm often concerned that clinical policies of organizations of which we are members and which we believe to be authoritative organizations and credible organizations, that we don't know what their policies are and that there may be some medical legal potholes associated with these policies, although I think most of the people who write them are aware of this risk. There are two recent policies released by the college. One of them was in October of 2008, and the other one was in December of 2008. One of them actually is very germane to some tragic accident that occurred recently where I don't recall her name. She was a actress, apparently well-known, except I honestly I'm, I don't know. I Natasha Richardson? It. Yes. Well, in any case, the first policy I'd like to review with you guys is Neuroimaging and decision-making in adult mild traumatic brain injury in the acute setting. Now, Greg, you commented offline here about some of the news stories that accompanied this lady's tragic accident. She, for those of you who don't recall, fell on a bunny slope and hit her head and died within a day or two of a brain hemorrhage that was she was transferred from Canada someplace down to New York. And nobody really knows a lot of the details, I don't think. But the bottom line is... She died. And there was these folks on TV saying, well, you ought to go to an emergency department, you need a CAT scan. There was a lot of overstatement, I think, that was generated in association with this woman's tragic death. It became ridiculous, Rick. This became grist for the mill. And you realize that she was initially approached by the ski patrol. And she said, no, I don't want to go. I don't want to be seen. And then all of a sudden, within an hour or two, she is going downhill. She had an epidural hematoma of some kind. But I think that 
when you heard people speaking on TV, it was the exact wrong people most of the time. I don't really want to hear what the neurosurgeons have to say about it simply because they don't see these people. We send them these people. No neurosurgeon today diagnoses those things. It is our profession that has to look at what is the standard of care with regard to seeing these people. By the way, you've commented on these policies, and what I should point out is that they have a disclaimer on the front. In fact, it's in different shading or different color on both these policies that basically says that. This is a review of a position. It does not necessarily reflect the policies and beliefs of the Annals of Emergency Medicine, which is the official publication organ of the American College of Emergency Physicians. Yes, but what they're doing is they're saying this journal, who is then published by Mosby, this is not the view of Mosby or this journal. These policy statements are ASEP policy statements. I'm making a distinction here. This journal may be running scared in the same context that you just mentioned, but the fact of the matter is, is these are ASEP policies. You would think a clinical policy would be a very broad brush of here's how you assess and how you treat these cases. The fact of the matter is, is they focus on very, very narrow questions using the literature to defend their answers. In the case of the woman, the brain injury profile here that was released in December, one of the questions is, which patients with mild traumatic brain injury, TBI, mild traumatic, they're not talking about head injury, they're talking about brain injury, should have a non-contrast head CT in the ED. Here's what the college says. A non-contrast head CT is indicated, that means you need to do it, in head trauma patients with a loss of consciousness or post-traumatic amnesia only if one or more of the following is present. Headache, okay, vomiting, good. Age greater than 60, because obviously you're close to Oh my to God, dead. Rick, we're in trouble dead. now, yeah. Drug or alcohol intoxication, deficits in short-term memory, physical evidence of trauma above the clavicle, post-traumatic seizure, a Glasgow coma score less than 15, a focal neurologic deficit or coagulopathy. So this says, with loss of consciousness, you need to do it. It is indicated. So I think that you need to know what the college is saying here in these cases. And I don't think, honestly, people would not do it in these cases. I think that in the United States, somebody who's had a loss of consciousness after a head injury will pretty much automatically be CT'd. So I don't think that there is much here in the way of a medical legal pothole. Well, I don't do that. What's that? I don't do that. If somebody fell over and got a whack on the head and they're not sure if they were knocked out and sometimes even if they were knocked out, it's such a poor predictor of intracranial pathology. And you can have a significant intracranial bleed without loss of consciousness. I don't think that's standard of care. I don't do it. Wait wait, wait a second. Let's Uh read this carefully because it says is indicated in head trauma patients with loss of consciousness or traumatic amnesia only if one or more of the following is present. It doesn't say everybody hit on the head with a loss of consciousness needs to have a CT, Rick. Right, it's loss of consciousness and something else. And something else. Did I misstate that? You said it it correctly at the beginning and then at the end you summarized differently. They're trying to be really vague here. Loss of consciousness and something else. And I think that becomes more reasonable. But as we did the Nexus 2 study and other things, it's really difficult to predict who's going to have something in their head. And if you want to pick up everybody, then you're going to have to scan everybody. 
And so the Natasha Richardson case is interesting because she probably would have fallen outside. She actually almost certainly will have fallen outside initially the ASEP guideline for head CT scanning. She fell over, she whacked her head, she was completely fine. If you had have seen her very quickly, if they had taken her down the hill and seen the ER doc within you know 30 minutes of her head injury, the ER doc would have been perfectly appropriate by the ASEP guidelines to have sent her away without any imaging. Look, she's fine, she just whacked her head, she's cool. And it just turns out she's one way, of those you... outliers that two hours later is starting to get a headache and bleeding into her head. Are you gentlemen aware that this took place actually in Canada, Mont Tremblant? So she really falls more under the Canadian guidelines for head injury, which are even more stringent than the U.S. guidelines. She would have fallen outside the Canadian recommendations. So I think your point is right, Rick. We need to know about these guidelines. We need to know what they say. Generally, I think you can correct me if I'm wrong. Generally, the guidelines, I think, are pretty loosey-goosey. In fact, sometimes they're so loosey-goosey because the people writing the guidelines realize this is in some ways a little silly process because each patient is so complicated. Trying to do a guideline to cover all patients is silly that most of the time they're so loosey-goosey they're not particularly useful clinically. I used to read these going, okay, ASAP's going to tell me the right way to look after this group of patients. And most of the time it's, they're so vague they're not particularly helpful. I think that that is true. The recommendation I originally read was what they consider to be a level A recommendation. It is the highest one that you can get based on the evidence. The more common cases, however, are those cases where there is no loss of consciousness. And there they drop down to a level B recommendation. And when you talk about level B, instead of saying is indicated, they start with a little more loosey-goosey phrase, should be considered. So a non-contrast head CT should be considered in head trauma patients with no loss of consciousness or post-traumatic amnesia if there is a focal neurologic deficit, vomiting, severe headache, age 65, they up the years by five years, they're good to know. Oh, you're safe for another few months, Rick. The <laughs> physical signs of basal skull fracture, a Glasgow coma score less than 15, coagulopathy, or a dangerous medical mechanism of injury, which is defined here. So... Those are by far the most common cases, and then the strongest thing they're willing to say is should be considered. Now, if you whack your head and you're over 65 and on an anticoagulant, I think most of us are going to have a fairly low threshold for doing it, but they don't take a very strong stand on this at all, should be considered. I don't think there's much of a pothole there. Yeah, it's kind of funny because another one you said was focal neurological findings. If somebody gets whacked on the head and has a new focal neurological finding, I would more than consider doing the CT. So it just shows you how difficult these guidelines are because the people are writing them. They're smart people who've read the literature and trying to come up with these guidelines is difficult. Again, you know, Dave Schrager said on MRAP a number of months ago that we've met the enemy and it is ourself. The writing of these guidelines and decision instruments trying to come up with very specific recommendations for individual patients is pretty much a waste of time. By the way, the only people who buy these guidelines, there's a disc you can get. Somebody has all the guidelines published by the 23 or 24 specialties. The only people who buy them, attorneys. Well, that's why I don't want us to get trapped and have stuff in these guidelines that you're not aware of. It appears that ASAP has been fairly cautious about how they're worded. The last issue here is, can a patient with an isolated, mild traumatic brain injury and a normal neurologic evaluation be safely discharged from the ED if a non-contrast CT shows no evidence of intracranial injury? And they basically say, based on level B evidence, 
that the patient I just described may be safely discharged from the ED. They basically conclude that there's minimal risk for developing an intracranial lesion and out they go. So this basically is reinforcing our common practice of doing just that. And if anything, this document will be coming to our rescue to say, well, why didn't you keep them? This paper makes the conclusion based on the literature that it's reasonable to send them home thereafter. Any thoughts on this one? I think that there's not too much here that is contentious. No, I could talk for hours about the stuff. I find it very interesting. It is true, though, just so we all know. We, we all already know this, that if you have a negative head CT, that doesn't mean that three hours from now you won't have an intracranial bleed. It is very rare. I think that's what they're trying to say. If your head CT is negative after a, a head injury, then the chance that you're going to need a surgery is low. But again, this Natasha Richardson case is interesting because she is the outlier. And she just happens to be a very famous outlier. So if you had a scanned her, if, again, she had to come straight down the hill, you were the doc that saw her and scanned her, there's a good chance that if you had a scanner in that first 30 minutes, it would have been completely normal. That this bleeding would have been so small initially as to not be detected. So she is the case that shows that what we do most of the time is right. And she is so interesting or was so interesting because she was famous, she was young, and a horrible thing happened that scared the crap out of everybody because we all know, even the lay public know, this doesn't happen very often. This is an extremely rare event. And that shouldn't make the us then go and scan everybody and produce cancer in everybody because of this extremely rare event in this very famous person. I think there's a lot of us who, when we look at these guidelines, some of these things are automatic. Who is not going to take somebody with a new injury who has a less than normal Glasgow coma scale and scan them. Would everybody stick their hand up, please, right now? It's not going to happen. I'll tell you the tough cases are in the older patients where we know we get delayed subdurals, and now let's say they're taking a little Coumadin or a little this or a little that. Even with a normal scan... The chances that you couldn't get something later, and I'll tell you what, those are the people who I really talk to the families about. This is good at this point. Just understand, you may be coming back here. We have to modify this to the people who are sitting in front of us. And I'll tell you, I have people who are very intelligent, who are excellent to send home. I have another group where I don't think they can figure the whole thing out, and I'll have them hang around for a while on a social basis, because I'm afraid to send them home. You know, what this brings up to me is the the fact that, you know, I sometimes get frustrated by the fact that when Greg says the standard of care is defined by those expert witnesses and that jury on the day after having listened to all of the information put before them, and I would like it to be something different. I'd like it to be some written statement that says, here is the standard of care. But you know what? It turns out to be crazy true, crazy right, crazy best thing, which is medicine is complex, individual patients are complex, and if in the face of a lawsuit you have good expert witnesses and a good discussion, that is probably still the best way to decide what was reasonable care at that time under those circumstances. It seems to be a very expensive way to do it, but it's not unreasonable. We make admission decisions based upon the intelligence and the ability of the patients in front of us to follow the discharge instruction programs. All of us have admitted a kid at one point or other in our careers based on looking at the parents and thinking, I don't want that kid going home with them. And we've all done that. And I don't know how you write that in a protocol or a clinical policy. That's something you feel at that moment in time. 
All right, let's move on to the next one, which is entitled Critical Issues in the Evaluation and Management of Adult Patients Presenting to the ED with Acute Headache. And before we get into this, Greg, I would like to acknowledge that when people started developing guidelines, there was this belief that, well, if we don't do it, somebody else will. But I also acknowledge that these guidelines are very tough to write, and I'm not really so sure how helpful they are. It's not like there's any bright revelations going on here. As an example, the first question addressed by this clinical policy is, does a response to therapy predict the etiology of acute headache? And they basically say that the best they can do is come up with a level C recommendation that pain response to therapy should not be used as the sole diagnostic indicator of the underlying etiology of an acute headache. Well, the idea of having a committee of about 20 doctors coming up with that statement is like, that would have been like a no-brainer kind of thing. In fact, we were having a lecture this year in the Emergency Medical Abstracts course about this kind of thing. And one of the papers we have basically shows that people who take triptans for the relief of pain and get relief of pain still could have something seriously wrong. You would think that something like a narcotic will just blunt out pain no matter what the cause is. A broken femur, an intracranial hemorrhage, no matter what, you'll feel a little bit better with some narcotics. However, a pain treatment that is related to the physiologic constriction of dilated blood vessels, you would not think would mask a more sinister cause. But the fact of the matter is, a literature review has shown that people can respond to triptans and still have serious things wrong with their head. Rick, people can respond to IV peanut butter. I think those of us who have done it long enough realize that the response to pain medicine or whatever we give them for pain is not adequate. I think what they're trying to say here is that can't be the only basis on which you decide to send them home. Right. Uh, you look at them, if they came in and say, you know, Doc, I'm just fine, I've never had a problem, and I had this terrible headache come on within 10 seconds and I dropped to the ground, I don't care what their response to pain medicine is, they're going to probably get a CT scan and a spinal tap in my department. And I'll tell you, I'm the conservative. I have probably the lowest use of the CT and headache in my department. But there comes a time sometime when you're going to be pushed. And response to pain medicine, nobody's proven that there's a scale here where we can decide who's safe and who isn't. And I think that's the point that they're trying to make. I think the better point in this is who needs to have neuroimaging. Well, that's number two. uh, Yeah, absolutely. The nice thing about this policy, as far as I'm concerned, is it asks the real questions. Because the question is, who are you going to shoot rads at and who aren't you? And who needs anything? And most people, and they basically say, if you've got a change in mental status and you've got a focal neurologic finding, we're going to get a scan on them. I can't disagree with that. I don't know anybody who's not going to do that. But the average patient coming in, and as you're well aware, both of you are well aware, in a lot of our places, 4 to 5% of the presenting complaints are headaches. It is where I'm currently located The most common chief complaint, better than chest pain ahead of abdominal pain, is headache. And the vast majority of those people need nothing. They need relief of their pain, perhaps, but the last thing they need is their 12th CT scan in the last six months. Well, the second point that they address is the one that you specifically also noted. Which patients with headache require neuroimaging, requires the word, neuroimaging in the emergency department? There were no level A recommendations. Level B, I don't think that anybody's going to disagree with this. Patients presenting to the ED with headache and new abnormal findings and a neurological exam, 
Patients presenting with new sudden onset severe headache should have an emergent head CT. And one of the things that importantly they point out is HIV positive patients with a new type of headache should be considered for an emergent neuroimaging study. Those were all level Bs. Level C, which is the least strong evidence, is patients who are older than 50 and present with new type of headache, but with a normal neurologic exam should be considered for an urgent neuroimaging study. So that's weak evidence, and they do have not a very strong word, should be considered. Now, what are we looking for over 50 with a new type of headache? Are we looking for kind of new bleeds? Are we looking for brain tumors here? I guess we're looking for the age of these patients. Doesn't seem to be correlated very much with subarachnoid hemorrhage, I don't think particularly. Not at all. What happens is, in emergency departments, we decide everybody with a headache is a migraine. The rule is, nobody over 50 develops migraine headaches. Those came on in your teens and your 20s. You can't make that diagnosis in a 50-year-old. If I see a 50-year-old with a new onset lateralized headache, I'd be much more concerned about temporal arteritis than I would a subarachnoid hemorrhage, Rick. Sudden and onset, sure, I'm happy to think of them with an aneurysm, but I think that the reason this is a level C is there ain't no data to suggest what they've got here. The key thing I think I'd like to reiterate, Greg, that you said is there are no new migraines at age 50. Don't even think about it. The third point they make is uh, does lumbar puncture need to be routinely performed on ED patients being worked up for non-traumatic subarachnoid hemorrhage whose (laughs) non-contrast brain CTs are interpreted as normal? And the answer is level B, yes, 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 and yes, and yes, is the answer to that. And finally... Well, it depends what you consider to be the acceptable miss rate, Rick. If you, there is if no acceptable consider, miss rate. Well, see, that's the point. This isn't England. In England, they've got an acceptable miss rate. I don't know, Mel, in Australia, do you have an acceptable miss rate? Certainly here in the States, the acceptable miss rate is somewhere near zero, I think. Well, I haven't worked in Australia for 17 years, I realized yesterday. So I don't know anymore, but I can tell you that, yeah, I think for a subarachnoid hybrid, the reason we say there's no acceptable miss rate is because what you're picking up here with that sudden onset of headache in somebody who looks good now is the sentinel bleed and the understanding that if we can find and clip that aneurysm, then a long-term neurological outcome is pretty much fantastic. Whereas if we miss it and they have a secondary bleed, their long-term neurological outcome is horrible. Therefore... We don't want to miss any of these people, if at all possible. Right. You're using old language there, Mel. You said if we clip it, you realize that about 90% of them are now coiled. And that's the true beauty of what's happened is that we can now treat these people without actually cracking open their heads. And I'll tell you what, if I have a choice of having my head opened or have them just coiled, I'll go for coiling every time. Yeah, you're right. Coiling is good. In which adult patient with a complaint of headache can a lumbar puncture be safely performed without a neuroimaging study first? Now, there are some people who believe that you can do it with pretty much impunity as long as there is no lateralizing findings because the fact of the matter is is that there are many conditions in which the intracranial pressure is elevated, particularly as an example in meningitis. It might be elevated, but we still do a lumbar puncture. These guys come up with level C recommendations that say Adult patients with headache and exhibiting signs of increased intracranial pressure, meaning papilledema, absent venous pulsations on the fundoscopic, altered mental status, focal neuroscience, or signs of meningeal irritation, should undergo a neuroimaging study before having a lumbar puncture. They basically say the LP-first strategy 
cannot be done unless you have clearly stated that you have seen no evidence of elevated intracranial pressure. The other thing they say is, in the absence of clinical findings suggestive of increased intracranial pressure, a lumbar puncture can be performed without obtaining a neuroimaging study. Because, you know, I was at one of our courses this past week. There was a woman who worked at a tiny little hospital. They didn't have a CAT scan. She would have to send every soul that she was interested in tapping first to some regional center to get a CAT scan. This policy allows you if you feel comfortable that this person is not exhibiting signs of increased intracranial pressure, to do a lumbar puncture. Although, Greg, you bring the neurology person here, can't you do a lumbar puncture in somebody who has no focality but has some evidence of increased intracranial pressure? Yeah, absolutely. I think that we way overemphasize the dangers of the lumbar puncture. If you do not have a lateralized lesion, after all, people with the highest increased intracranial pressures are those who have benign intracranial hypertension. And what do we do to treat them? We do a lumbar puncture on them and we drain them dry, essentially. It's a focal finding, which is the problem. And I'm willing to say this. This is one of those urban myths that, oh, all the damage we cause with the spinal taps, the public believes they're a dangerous thing. They believe that all that handicapped parking we have outside the emergency department is for people we did lumbar punctures on. I think it's one of the safest procedures we do. And believe me, if I was in East Jesus, Nebraska, and there was no CT scan available at that moment in time, and they didn't have a focal finding, I'd just tap them. Let me make another point. If you're going to send them to the CT scan first and you think they've got meningitis, just go ahead and start their antibiotics before they leave for the CT scan. Every case lawsuit in meningitis has to do with only one thing, time of recognition to first antibiotic. That's it. So hang a bottle of something, you know, gorillacillin, whatever you'd like, just hang it. Then if you want to get the CT scan, fine, but you're already treating the patient. It would appear then that you would contest the uh, recommendations that you should not perform a lumbar puncture in somebody who has a headache unless you've imaged them first if you suspect increased intracranial pressure. Now, we're not talking about focality or lateralizing signs. So, if anything, when you get sued, call Greg and he might help you out here because he doesn't agree with this recommendation. Do you, Greg? The other thing is, you can do an exam on the patient. If they have spontaneous venous pulsations in the eyes, they don't have increased intracranial pressure. Just go ahead and tap them. I've yet to see the case. Again, this is urban myth. Oh, you hurt all these patients. I don't see that. I mean, there are people we worry about. Let's say your patient is on Coumadin and all that sort of thing. You certainly can have some local effects from doing lumbar punctures, but in the vast majority of cases, this is the safest procedure you do. You're much more likely to hurt the patient doing an arterial blood gas than you are doing a spinal tap. So there are some other patients too, though, obviously, if you're obtunded, if you can't get a good exam, if you didn't do a good exam, you know, all these things. But Greg, I want to go back to what Rick said So you're saying you disagree with this. So even if you had raised intracranial pressure, there's lots of people with meningitis that have raised intracranial pressure, and we tap them all the time, and they do fine. So you're going sort of against this guideline, which says if you suspect raised intracranial pressure, you shouldn't do it. You're saying if there's some obstruction of flow, if there's focality, if they're really high risk for a space-occupying lesion like an HIV-positive patient or they're obtunded, they're the people you worry about. But just specifically, I'm worried 
about this general concern of raising intracranial pressure alone is really not enough. It's really not. In fact, if you think about it, if you think about the laws of fluid dynamics, pressure is exerted in all directions at all time. It's only when you have isolated pockets that you have a problem. But as again, I was pointing out, patients with benign intracranial hypertension will have huge pressures and the treatment is a spinal tap. All right, let's move on to the last point. This is a very interesting question. Is there a need for further emergent diagnostic imaging in the patient with sudden onset severe headache who has negative findings on a, both a CT and a lumbar puncture? Can you stop there? Level A recommendations, they don't have any. B, patients with a sudden onset severe headache who have negative CT and normal opening pressure and negative findings on CSF do not need emergent angiography and can be discharged from the ED for follow-up being recommended. So they kind of hedge it at the end there, follow-up. What follow-up would that possibly be? There are people who would say that in some situations additional imaging would be appropriate based on the history of the patient, the family history, and other kinds of things that make you worried. So that it's kind of surprising that they have taken this rather polar stand on this. Greg, what do you think? I think that if the patient had their sudden onset of headache seven days ago, and now they come in, and I've had this case, a guy who was playing golf in Bermuda had a loss of consciousness he comes back when he gets back into the United States and tells the story. That story, and by the way, he had a negative CT and no cells and no xanthochromia on his LP. He's the kind of guy who I think deserves an MRA in a reasonable time frame because he's the kind of guy that you could miss. If someone comes in and said, by the way, everybody in my family's died of a cerebral aneurysm, I might be interested in doing that one as well. I think the vast majority of patients don't need anything else. But you're going to get that odd case where I think it may be perfectly reasonable, and that's the case I just gave you. Yes, I have a history of polycystic kidneys. You know? <laughs> well, we'd think about it hard. The other thing now is we don't have to be as invasive as we used to be. The CTA or the MRA are really quite good. They will find a lesion that's the size that requires coiling. Remember this, by the way, at autopsy, between 3 and 5% of people will have, who are totally symptomatic throughout their life, will have an aneurysm, a small aneurysm. If I told you right now, Mel, you have a small aneurysm, do you want us to fix it, yes or no? I think that's a hard question. Yeah, I wanted to bring that up. I think that the ACIP policy here is actually right that for the vast majority of people, if your scan's negative and your tap's negative, those people longitudinally do really, really well. It is the rare person, exactly. again, the very rare person that has an incredibly good history that makes your pretest probability so high that you have to go further. And in fact, talking to the neurosurgeons at USC, this is the bane of their existence, exactly what Greg said. So there was a little concern here and somebody didn't do the LP and they get an MRA and sure enough, there's a little aneurysm or two. And they like, am I going to help this person with a coil? Or is this just one of those people that had them? I mean, a lot of people just have them. And they sort of are wringing their hands constantly about this stuff. It's like the person with back pain you do an MRI on. And there's a little disc bulge. Okay, are those two really related? Everybody has a little disc bulge. So the better our imaging gets, the more of these little aneurysms we find. And if we're really not concerned about them or if the history wasn't so good, we probably will do more harm coiling that kind of person than good. But again, I think it's true. If the history is really good, 
then you probably, in some rare, rare cases, might have to go further than CTLP. Yeah, I would point out that anybody who's looking for 100%, anybody who's looking for perfection, they need to get a religion, not medicine, because medicine is not 100%. The other thing is you can never guarantee that when we actually go in to do something, you're not going to be worse off. (laughs) I've just dealt with a case that had to do with carotid endarterectomy, and there's no question that the ER picked up the problem of a carotid, 95% carotid occlusion. The patient, however, wasn't bad until they did the endarterectomy, and when they woke up, half their body didn't move. Anytime we can do you some good, we can do you some harm. All right, you want to get this a few letters? Hey, a letter would be a good thing. Hello. I have an issue for Greg, Rick, and Mel to discuss. It concerns the use of TPA and stroke. We wouldn't know anything about those. I work in a community hospital with three neurologists. We have been giving TPA for strokes for the last 10 years. I wonder if they've actually looked to see how they do. There was recently a patient that met criteria and was given TPA. She later developed a bleed and had to be transferred. We have a single neurosurgeon on staff, but he is semi-retired and only does spinal surgery. The nearest hospital with neurosurgical capability is 30 minutes by air. After this, the neurologist sent out a letter saying that they no longer feel it is safe to give TPA at our hospital, citing lack of neurosurgical backup as the main factor. They have also implied that they do not wish to be involved in the care of these patients, yet they continue to take neurology call. We have suggested they develop a transfer agreements, give TPA if they feel is appropriate, then transfer the patient. We have also said that despite TPA being a controversial drug at best, patients meeting the criteria should at least be provided with its risks and benefits. They want our thoughts on this. First thought is, you're right. Patients deserve, no matter what our personal opinions are, and I know this panel has some strong personal opinions, they at least ought to know what the risks and benefits are. I would make these comments, and I want to hear what both Mel and Rick have to say about this. There is no evidence that having a neurosurgeon available changes the outcome in any of these cases. If a patient has just had TPA and is bleeding, what neurosurgeon in his right mind wants to open the head of this kind of patient? I mean, he's just inviting disaster at that moment in time. Guys, what do you think about this? I don't know the literature as it pertains to TPA for stroke, but there is some literature in TPA for MIs if they bleed into their heads. There is actually some evidence that maybe at least a subset of those patients do better if you open them up and evacuate the clot versus do medical therapy, which would be FFP and Beriplex and you know all this stuff to try and reverse them. But I don't know, you know in TPA for stroke. There may be a paper out there, guys. I haven't seen that paper with regard to TPA for stroke, opening the head. And by the way, I don't want to turn out anybody who's got a pulse and no brain, but I haven't seen any paper that says we return people to functionality once they've had TPA and a stroke by entering the head. So if your neurologists want to take this position, that's their business, but it's certainly not defended by literature that I'm aware of that it's unsafe giving the medication because of the fact there's no neurosurgical backup. I don't think there's anything to defend that. 
And it's certainly not, at least my understanding of this is, certainly not the practice of most emergency departments to require that a neurosurgeon be on staff and on call and available before you give TPA for stroke. Even though I don't necessarily want to give TPA for stroke, that wouldn't be what would be sort of standard in the community is my guess. The people I talk to, there's a lot of people giving TPA for stroke who don't have neurosurgical panels. I think that what we've got here now is we've got three neurologists who found the perfect out for not being involved in the care of these patients once they're given TPA. Here's one. It says, could you discuss the idea about coroners and medical examiners on lawsuits? We have found many lawsuits are started because the county medical examiner puts down an erroneous cause of death. The family gets upset and then sues the doctors. For example, hospice patients likely dies from sepsis or pneumonia, but has undiagnosed fracture of the tibia. Well, that's interesting. And the MD was sued because the medical examiner put down the cause of death was a fractured tibia. Another case is a patient who likely died from an opioid OD, but because they had coronary artery plaques on pathology, the medical examiner wrote the death was an MI. The physician was then sued for missing the diagnosis. Greg, have you ever run into anything like this? I just know this. Uh, having reviewed virtually thousands of cases, the greatest fiction in America is the diagnosis that sits on death certificates. When I was a resident, I used to put down when they say, you got to put something in here. I put short of breath. The bottom line is most of these are not well-articulated studies where they've looked very carefully at things. Whenever you use the medical examiner or whatever's been put down on that death certificate as a reason to go after a patient, let's say it's really weak grounds. We need cause more relevant than this to go after doctors. But I'll tell you what, I've seen the strangest things written on death certificates where the emergency doc has paid the price later. I have one here. We have to be a little bit careful with this one because this is an active case and he doesn't want his name used. And I think we just should address this generically. First of all, you should probably tell people we don't really want to talk about active cases and you don't want to ask us about active cases unless we can make it so generic that it cannot be identified that we are possibly talking about your case. Here's one. This is a doctor who was involved. He was one of a number of doctors who was involved in the patient who may have had a spinal infection, who these epidural abscesses, which always become problematic, and the patient then becomes a quadriplegic. And the concern is that one of the experts in this case is an infectious disease doctor who states in writing that he understands the standard of care that should be rendered to these patients and is therefore prepared to testify regarding this case. Our doctor basically says he doesn't know the standard of care. He's an infectious disease doctor. I'm an emergency physician. He doesn't see these cases de novo like we do. They only see them after they've been referred to the infectious disease doctor. So he's concerned that this expert really does not know about emergency medicine. He's concerned that he will be put into the database if he loses. He's concerned about any legal recourse against a, a witness that, in fact, does not know the standard of care, despite the fact that he claims to know it. It's a recurring theme that we've had in the past about expert witnesses who really are not truly expert in the matter at hand. Greg? Yeah, this is a state-by-state -state question, Rick. If I had to give any ASEP chapter in the country huge kudos, the first one goes to Cal ASEP, which many years ago 
got it so that if you're going to testify against an emergency physician in the state of California, you have to be a practicing emergency physician. God love them for that. I would show up in various cases. I was in Missouri on a case where the guy opposing me on an emergency medicine case was a retired gynecologist from Buffalo. And I would point out it's much better to be a gynecologist from Buffalo than a Buffalo gynecologist. But he actually said he was qualified because he knew what the boys in the emergency department were doing. And that judge qualified him to be an expert. Now, they brought out the various facts of what our various practices were on the stand. But this is absolutely state by state whether they will let you speak to the standard of care in a profession. And I'll tell you what, in about half the states in this country, they let people who are non-boarded emergency physicians talk about what we do. And they say things like, well, I worked in the emergency department when I was an intern. Well, I took out appendices when I was an intern, but I would never even consider speaking to the standard of care of a general surgeon But unfortunately, this is state by state, and they have to be challenged individually at the time of trial. This is something that's come up before. This doctor is one of a number in an ER group. A number of them are being sued in this case. And the doctor says, I think my insurance company will probably want to settle for the least amount of money possible. What if I don't want to settle? Can I request my own attorney? Would I be expected to pay out of pocket for this? In my insurance hat. Let me tell you what would usually happen. You bought insurance, doctor, to cover your assets, not your honor. If you want to defend your honor, buy a rapier or get a gun. The insurance company is not interested in you assuaging your conscience. So what they will probably say is, doctor so-and-so, we could get you out of this for, let's say, $100,000. Here's the 100000 If you want to fight anything above that, that's terrific. Just pay it out of your pocket. And there's great sense to that because that doctor, if he doesn't want to settle, puts everybody else's insurance rates in that group at risk. Sometimes settlement is not an unintelligent way to go. See, I don't mind a doctor who puts his money where his mouth is. I don't want him putting my money where his mouth is. And doctors view this as a question of honor, and I understand that. But in the end, it is a financial decision, and we sometimes make business decisions which the doctor doesn't like. So, Greg, come on. Most important part of Risk Management Monthly every month is wine of the month. Are you going to do a Pinot Grigio for us this month? For the first time, we're going to feature a champagne. Understand champagne is a wine which should not be reserved for special occasions. It does improve in the glass over an evening. You don't have to have every bubble coming to the surface at the forefront. Our selection of the month, all of us know Moet and Chandon because everybody knows the famous Don Perignons. I mean, that's what 007 drank, and it's still a fabulous, fabulous champagne. The Moet Chandon 1998 is the Don Perignon Rose. It is fabulous. But it's $475 a bottle. Moet and Chandon make a non-varietal Imperial, which gets incredibly high marks 
from all the wine judges, whether it's Parker, whether it's the Wine Advocate. And this one you can buy for 35 to 40 bucks a bottle. Now, that's one-twelfth the cost, if you figure that math out, one-twelfth the cost of the Dom Perignon Rose. And I'm willing to bet that most people can't tell the difference when it's in the glass. So there's the wine of the month. Enjoy. I love it. Actually, I had Dom Perignon for the first time recently, and it was good, but it did come in a very fancy bottle, and maybe that's why I liked it so much. (laughs) Yes, of course. It's just a little bit of the placebo effect, but that's all right. Right. Well, I thought this was a good tape this month, guys. I thought it was very clinical. We went through all of those guidelines, and we went through those articles, and I liked it. I liked it a lot. (laughs) Well, you're a little prejudiced. We'll talk with you next month. Hopefully one of these, again, will be done live. There's our limitations of the telephone, there's for sure. So, Greg, I want to look into your eyes and see your passion, and Mel as well. Let's get together again. We'll do one soon. See you guys later. Bye-bye.